From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is Holly Payne. I'm the author of Kingdom of Simplicity. I'm part of the MFA writing program at CCA here in San Francisco, and I'm also a private writing coach throughout the country. I wrote this story in response to a drunk driver who asked for my forgiveness after he struck me in 1994 and left me unable to walk for nearly a year. And I was unfamiliar with the Amish practice of forgiveness when I was growing up there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, during my childhood. And it was through a combination of dealing with the drunk driver and his letter and his request for forgiveness and my own observations and learnings about the Amish community that allowed me to really kind of work through my own pain and uncertainties about whether or not I, I could forgive somebody like this who had, who had taken so much from me at a young age. So I'm going to read from the beginning of part two. And the character that you need to know about is Eli Yoder, who is a 16-year-old Amish kid who's going through the period of running around The Amish are given free reign once they turn 16 to interact with the outside world. And here he is starting what is the beginning of that period called Rumspringa. And essentially he's dealing with the aftermath of an accident that has taken his five sisters. A part of me remained in the old walnut tree, looking down, trying to make sense of the edge of our farm where my sisters were last seen. On the anniversary of their death, I'd climb into the tree and watch the sunrise over our farm to understand better my role in the accident, hoping that one day when I climbed down and let go of the limbs, I would also let go of the need to know why it had happened. If I had been a true Amish man, I would have believed it was God's plan, but I couldn't when I was that young. Everyone in Lancaster had heard of Eli and the Yoder sisters, even though my parents had never granted an interview with reporters, chasing the vans of WGAL-TV8 off our property. The story had made headlines across national, state, and local media, including both weekly Amish newspapers, The Budget and Die Botschaft, as well as the monthly magazine The Diary. The accident catalyzed a statewide prayer group, which flooded our roadside mailbox with letters, cards, gifts, prayers— and much to my father's chagrin, money. In the first year, more than 100,000 arrived in the form of a check or money order, or for those who didn't know, we used bank accounts, cash. At first, my father accepted the money graciously. It helped us pay his medical bills for a fractured hip, femur, pelvis, and shoulder. To this day, he has never seen the extent of his injuries in any x-ray, even though my mother had telling me it looks just like smashed saltines. Dat's recovery did not deplete the Amish medical aid, our form of health insurance, which he refused to tap into in case another person needed it more. By the time the media barrage ended, which lasted until the day my father graduated from crutches to a cane, his auction business had tripled. My father was busy almost every day of the week, which hurt our tobacco crop and the men who depended on it for their cigars, Leroy Fisher included, In a way, I think my father appreciated the business so that he'd never have to stop to think. And despite my mother's pleading to sit and rest when he began to show signs of limping, my father never stopped moving. Once he began to walk, he was on a mission to forget. He focused on honing his craft, gaining an intimate knowledge of the value of things. He loathed the money filling our mailbox every month because no sum could ever replace his five daughters. 
It's a funny thing to know that money sometimes was a means by which the Englishers communicated their connection to each other and to us. Don't get me wrong. I know that their money was a way to show their love, but our wealth was measured in the depth of our experiences with the land and in our relationship to God and each other. However, money affected us just the same. For many months after his recovery, my father's nightly ritual consisted of counting the bills and smoking his cigars, pushing the heap of money to my mother, who would count the bills again with teary-eyed disbelief, then push it back across the table to Dad, uncertain as to what to do with it. The volley continued for years. In fact, every summer, usually not exactly on the anniversary, but within two weeks of it, we'd receive a check for $10,000 from an anonymous donor. The third time it happened, in 1979, my father counted the zeros a few times, tapped the ash of his cigar into the check, then looked up and said, That's it. Who do they think they are? They need to move on. The very next day, he painted a sign and hung it along the fence line, where it would remain, misspellings and all, until the day he died. We're doing fine, thank ye. No need to stop. The next year, when the check arrived in our mailbox, always a money order with no return address, my father wrote in the huge jagged print known only to belong to his palsied right hand, We need less money, more God. My mother opposed him. She wanted to keep the money and set up a fund for Amish children with special needs like me and find a doctor who could help mitigate the backlash of the less-than-desirable genetic traits we suffered, from webbed hands and webbed feet to maple syrup urine disease. After all, we are the descendants of only 200 Swiss Anabaptists, a considerably small gene pool. Mam suggested surgery for my hands to slice through the webbing and separate my fingers. My father protested, believing it was God's will, to which my mother would look at the money and say, that was God's will, too. My father drowned in the flood of care and concern, not so much from the Amish, but from the English. Something in him couldn't accept their help, and he distanced himself from their gifts and from my mother in the process. Each year, his signs grew larger, the writing bolder and more barbed. For the first two years, we could hardly keep up with the fudge orders, which my mother was making exclusively. She hadn't touched the recipe, but received an award for the best fudge in the county, beating our competitor, Mises Candy, who, in my grandfather's opinion, made fudge far smoother than ours. Still, tour groups rushed the stand, loading up boxes and backpacks with bricks of maple fudge in an empty jar they decided was appropriate for tips. Week after week, they stuffed it full not with $1 bills, but tens and twenties. They would pay for the fudge and dump the change into the jar, but never coins, as if coins were offensive and cheap. The only time I saw coins in that jar was when a small girl, a few years younger than me at the time, with a bushel of gold curls and strawberry stains on her lips, dug into the front pocket of her overall dress and pulled out two silver dollars as big as her blue eyes. Her father caught me and smiled. It's Madison's birthday money, he said. People wanted to give to us and they wanted to share our grief. They wanted to reach out across the counter and through the barrier to our world to say they cared. There was an odd connection I felt to these people, who, like me, struggled to forgive the driver, and so they filled the tip jar, driven not by the confections they might find, but by the guilt of their association they could relieve instead. I heard them often say, they should hang the bastard, or I'd kill him myself. Everyone assumed the man was a driver, but none of us knew for sure. We didn't dwell on it. The driver remained faceless, not because the police had failed to find him, 
but because we never focused on humanizing him by giving him eyes, lips, a nose, ears, or a heart. If he had had these things, we'd wonder why he had never come to meet us. I was reminded day after day from my teachers, classmates, cousins, and neighbors to forgive the sinner, but not the sin. But no matter how many times I repeated this adage, I failed to practice what I preached. I couldn't comprehend anybody living with the fact that they had killed my sisters. There were other people who felt like me, but they were not Amish. I would not find them at the schoolhouse or in the fields or working behind the stands at the market. I found them instead in the 1,251 letters they wrote in 1976. There was a certain freshness to the letters that I'd never heard expressed openly among the Amish, and this raw and curt honesty compelled me to read them over and over, even though my father had tried to get rid of them by throwing them in the trash. I was careful to wait until he fell asleep to dig out the crumpled pages that infuriated him but consoled me. Never before had I read such expressions of rage, disgust, injustice, pain, and hate. The English language suited me. There were many more ways to say how I felt it and a certain freedom of feeling that came with a cost in our Deutsch dialect. Perhaps it was my insatiable curiosity with other people's anger that compelled me to learn how to read and write English quicker than most Amish boys my age. I wanted to feel this rage expressed in a voice that was not my own. The more I read, the more indebted I was to the writer for relieving me of the exact same thoughts. There were even doodles included in the cards sent by school-aged children, pictures of long blue swimming pools and swing sets, invitations for me to visit and enjoy them. I liked the rainbows they drew arched over pots of gold with me and the child artist holding hands between it, stick figure friendships extended beyond purple crayon fence posts. I wanted to thank these writers for the gift of their letters and for making me feel less alone. Over the years, I've been tempted to travel to the destinations I track through the many postcards, didn't matter where the letters came from, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, North Dakota. Almost everyone said the same thing. They were praying for me and my family. They were sorry, sad, and angry we had lost my sisters. Some even went on to call the driver a coward for never coming forth. I felt understood by the English and was frustrated that I could not write back to them at the time because of my hands. Day after day, cobbling the message inside their pages, I realized that in many ways, I was more like them than the Amish. There are countless stories in the martyr's mirror about the Amish forgiving their transgressors, but no story intrigued me more than that of the Dutch Anabaptist Dirk Willems. I had first heard this story on my 10th birthday at school, rainy after day, barely a month after the funeral. I'd sat on the floor cross-legged while my teacher explained that Dirk had been chased by a thief-catcher not because Dirk was a thief, but because he didn't believe in infant baptism. In the midst of his escape, Dirk turned back to rescue his pursuer, who had fallen through an icy lake that he had just crossed outside his village. Dirk was captured and burned at the stake on a windy day, which only delayed his death when the winds lifted the fire away from his upper body. According to villagers, he cried, "'Oh, my Lord, my God!' seventy times during the fire." When my teacher read over Dirk's story, she emphasized not the crying or the torture of the fire, but the significance of the 70 times Dirk cried. It was Jesus, she reminded us, but looked at me when she spoke, who told Peter that he should forgive those who sinned against him, not just seven times like he asked, but 70. The point, she said, was that being Amish meant embracing the fundamental practice of forgiveness, 
which was the very tool of our survival over the last 400 years. We had forgiven our enemies during the Reformation, and we had learned to love them. I remember thinking how long it'd take to forgive the driver 70 times when I hadn't even made it to one. When the teacher asked us if we had anyone in our hearts we needed to forgive, I raised my hand but asked to go to the bathroom. I used the outhouse but did not come back inside. I ran home instead, hoping that my mother would mistake the source of my white eyes and cheeks as the rain. She found me in the barn, beating the hay bales I draped with my father's black capes. My parents were no more willing to talk about the driver than my teacher, and the more they refused to bring him up, the more prone I was to address him directly. Not him exactly, but the hay bales that I shouted, spit at, and whacked with a baseball bat so frequently they had blisters on my hands more often than not that autumn. I don't know if my mother thought this to be destructive. She never said anything that day and left me alone, returning later with an aloe plant and a bandage. When my father asked about my hands, I told him I had climbed a tree. I did not have the courage to tell either parent that if I had been Dirk Wellams and had seen the thief catcher fall through the ice, I doubted I'd ever have the courage to save him. I wanted to end the questions that plagued us all, my mother included. I wanted to know why the driver never said he was sorry. Back then, that would have been enough for us to move on. I learned to seek comfort from Captain Courageous. Rather than play with my friends at the schoolhouse, I sat by myself at recess and read. I'd found more instruction in the comic books Leroy had given me than in any lesson my teacher had planned. I called them my buddy books, and I read them more than the Osbund. They would become my friends over the years I had ignored my own and let them slip away that autumn. Just as I didn't want pity from the people who saw my hands as ugly, I didn't want the canned comfort of anyone who believed I should be moving on faster. The more they tried to turn my focus away from my grief, the more I resisted, and the more time I spent with my nose inside the buddy books. I'd sneak them into class and hide them inside my notebooks, translating the English words and phrases, becoming fluent in its sordid slang. I'd unwittingly drawn attention to myself once by letting out a good howl during class. My teacher asked in high German, "'What's so funny, Eli?' I looked out the window as another tour bus stopped to take pictures of the Amish kids playing softball in the schoolyard, tossing them pennies for their photo as if their soul cost as much as a large gumdrop. The English, I'd say, and she'd bite her lip and nod, then turn to the vocabulary list she'd been writing on the blackboard. I didn't have to lie. She knew what I'd been reading, and although Captain Courageous had not been part of her lesson plan, she responded well— touched to hear me laugh. I did not talk much, rarely in school, and it surprised her as much as any classmates to hear my voice. I'd come to rely on the comfort of those buddy books. I'd take the magazines with me and climb the hill above our farm to lose myself in the blurbs and balloons hovering over Captain Courageous, a prophet of quests and conquests. I marveled at his supernatural powers to come to the aid of people in distress, mostly frightened soldiers during World War II. It made sense to me that somebody would do that, but I often wondered if Captain Courageous in his mask and special suit was God in disguise. In later issues, I liked that he formed the Super Mystery Men, a group of heroes that band together to help free themselves and everyone else captured by a wayward soldier. Although he was not an Anabaptist, he still interested me and I respected him. I often wondered if Leroy had given me the comic books to make me believe that I could rescue myself. Emma Beeler was the only person I knew who wasn't bothered by my sadness, and oddly enough in her presence, I was able to feel joy. 
We were used to seeing each other every week at the market, but now that my sisters were gone, none of us could ignore the huge space between us. Though I had grown used to eating lunch by myself, Emma began to bring me turkey subs from Mr. Brubaker's deli or a paper cone filled with Fink's fries so that I wouldn't leave. I managed to grunt a thank you, because it was, after all, a gift, and there we'd stand at our stalls facing each other while we ate in silence, the English in the aisle between us. Over time, she had found ways to engage me in pleasant conversation about things that had nothing to do with forgiveness. Eventually, we sat together to eat lunch, though she was the one who came to join me. She even stayed to help at the candy stand when things got busy and she had sold out of bread. We soon passed the slow times at market, talking about fishing rods and scooters and dogs, and when I didn't feel like talking, I gave her a copy of Captain Courageous to read. Years later, she would confess that she never liked the comic books, but she liked the smile they brought to my face. Of course, she was quicker to understand, explaining to me the courage of Captain Courageous, as if she hoped it would be mine someday. Ever since my sisters had died, she kept an eye on me at school, especially at recess, and she did not dare let the tourists have their way when a camera dangled from their rubbery necks. I'd seen her on more than one occasion scoop up gravel into her fists when the tourists got too close, then she'd let it go and wave her empty hands, skin pocked from the tiny stones. If you take a picture of his hand, she said, I'll break your camera. Emma was my only friend then, and we spent every Sunday by the pond behind our barn, fishing even when there was nothing to catch or when the reeds had turned to glass with ice. In the summer, we spent hours floating on inner tubes, staring up the humid sky of Lancaster County, daring it to open with rain. I like sharing those summer rainstorms with Emma. Something about the rain soothed me, and I appreciated the unapologetic sadness of it. Emma taught me to take my shoes off and walk through the mud and lie on the ground and let it absorb my grief. Don't you feel it dripping off your ankles, she asked. I rolled my head, feeling the mud in my ear. Like what? I don't know, suppose like candle wax. Are you making a joke, I asked. Emma shook her head, then cracked her lips and smiled. We both laughed. Lying there on the ground, we howled, mouths open, tongues sticking out to taste the rain. This is malarkey, isn't it, I asked, getting up, feeling silly. No, she said, and she was serious. Emma understood that my mourning would only last as long as I needed to process everything. She never tried to talk me out of the way I was feeling, and for this I grew indebted to her. I found ways to show my gratitude, bringing her flowers from Mam's garden every so often or a packet of seeds, though it was not always easy for her to deal with my moodiness. I'm sure I tested her patience, given the fact that she was two years older and far more mature than me. I know I saw the frustration in her face when even on a sunny day floating on the pond, I hadn't smiled once. It was as if my mind and my heart were working through a long thaw that none of us knew how long would take. The only thing Emma ever told me, which was not advice, but a simple understanding of the way of things, time heals everything, Eli, if you let it, she said, then added, if you want it. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.